Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Aftermath For Episode 35 Chapter 29 The Golden City of Usera And Cantos 14 and 15 Of Dante's Inferno Violence Ring 3 So, we meet again, here in this city of gold and greed. This, the third ring of violence. Blasphemers. Usurers. And also sodomites. But I'm not going to get into that particular discussion. Also, before we get going... A brief note, a bit of clarification, if you will. A couple episodes ago, I mentioned how Dante and I shared a a dislike of bankers. I told you the story of Bill Johnson and his mafioso loan shark attitude. Sure, he helped me get to college, which I dropped out of, and helped me get my first car, my second car, Probably even my third car, now that I think about it. But it never felt like he thought of me as a person. Even when he was helping me, it felt like I was some kind of subhuman creature to him. Like, the only reason he helped me was because it would benefit him. I know, I know, that's how banks and loans work. I'm just saying his greed and arrogance heavily outweighed his integrity. I also had a banker once who helped me get a new car, and that guy was upset because he thought I was paying too much. He literally asked me if I could, quote, Jew the seller down. I managed to get the loan even without Jewing anybody down. But still, it was a strange sense of greed that I got from him. All that aside, I just want to clarify that I don't dislike all bankers. I've met some genuinely great and caring ones. Bankers that truly want to help people acquire vehicles, homes, or help small businesses. I just felt the need to clear the air a bit, just in case there's... Any bankers listening to this that felt personally attacked. And for that, I sincerely apologize. I'm not apologizing to Bill Johnson, however. But he's dead, so I'm not really all that worried about his feelings. So let's talk about Dante. Cantos 14 and 15 take Virgil and Dante further into the Inferno as they leave the second ring of violence and enter into the third. These cantos are richly detailed, though they aren't particularly grand in thrills and adventure. Maybe it's just me, but personally, I don't think the Inferno was ever about grand adventures and big thrills. If it was, Dante the Pilgrim would have been a hero instead of a tourist. 
he probably wouldn't be fainting and leaning so heavily on Virgil. Of course, this is not to say there isn't any adventure to be had. After all, we've witnessed violent storms, Cerberus, Minos, Minotaurs, Centaurs, vast rivers of boiling blood and what have you. I'm just saying Dante's introspective midlife crisis revolving around medieval Catholicism, eh, well, it isn't, you know, Clash of the Titans. And we really shouldn't expect it to be. Anyways, with all that rambling nonsense out of the way, let's get in to what these cantos really mean and what's all happening in them. I'm going to go ahead and let the good Reverend take the lead here for a moment. That's Reverend Henry Francis Carey. In his translation of the Inferno, he says this of Canto 14. They arrive at the beginning of the third of those compartments, into which this seventh circle is divided. It is a plain of dry and hot sand, where three kinds of violence are punished, namely, against God, against nature, and against art. And those who have thus sinned are tormented by flakes of fire, which are eternally showering down upon them. Among the violence against God is found Caponius, who blasphemies they hear. Next, turning to the left, along the forest of self-slayers, and having journeyed a little onward, they meet with a streamlet of blood that issues from the forest and traverses the sandy plain. Here, Virgil speaks to our poet of a huge, ancient statue that stands within Mount Ida in Crete, from a fissure in which statue there is dripping of tears, from which the said streamlet, together with the three other infernal rivers, are formed. Okay, so from there, let's hit the high notes. Dante and Virgil walk the rim of a vast desert. Fire is raining down on the damned. These are the blasphemers, violent against God. Most notably among them is Caponius. And if you're like me, you're no expert in most things, let alone Greek mythology. So... I'll go ahead and fill you in on old Cappy. Caponius, well, he was a legend of Greek mythology, one of the seven against Thebes. He was prideful to a fault, and that's an understatement. Eventually, he was struck down by Zeus as he attempted to climb the walls of the city. 
I'm assuming you know who Zeus is. I mean, even an ordinary guy like me knows that one. His story is most generally remembered as one of bravery and determination when facing off against impossible odds. Here he lies in the sand, screaming that he is the same in death as he was in life, that the gods will tire of punishing him before he tires of being punished. The more he digs his heels in, however, the more extreme the punishment. Still, he refuses to relent. I always thought it was odd that Caponius is here for blaspheming a Greek god, not a Christian god. I suppose the sentiment is the same, though. Whatever god rules you, whatever god created you, well, that god is not to be trifled with. Or maybe he's here because he was part of an archaic and wrong belief system. Who knows? Others lie in the sand here, as the burning embers fall on them as well. And it's not just the old cap'n. These are all the blasphemers. Others wander, unable to stop moving, lest they burn even more. These are the sodomites. The violent against nature. The daughter of God. The third set of sinners in this circle crouch and cower in the sand as they attempt to brush away the falling embers. These are the violent against art, the daughter of nature, thus the grandchild of God. These are the usurers. Of this circle and these sinners, John Ciardi writes, Blasphemy, sodomy, and usury are all unnatural and sterile actions. Thus, the unbearing desert is the eternity of these sinners, and thus the rain, which in nature should be fertile and cool, descends as fire. Couldn't have said it better myself, Johnny. No, really, I'm being serious. I'm not that astute. I promise you. Anyway, they eventually come to a small stream of blood coming out of the forest. Virgil lets Dante know that this river is one of the most remarkable things they've witnessed so far. He explains that this stream crosses the desert, and as it grows, it extinguishes the flames on its banks, allowing them to proceed. Also, he tells Dante the origins of this and the other rivers that flow through hell. He tells the tale of a giant buried beneath Crete. This is a reference to the old man of Crete. I'm not going to get into detail of the old man outside of Dante's poem. You can look it up on your own, and it is actually pretty interesting. Dante's version of this figure is a giant, with a head made of gold. His arms and chest are silver, his torso is brass, and his legs are iron, while one foot is made of clay. As the giant weeps, his tears form Acheron, Styx, and Phlegathon. 
which in turn form Cocytus, the vast lake located at the bottom of the inferno. Also, a brief note, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce Cocytus. I've heard it Cocytus, I've heard it Cocytus. In darker days, eventually we're going to get here, I am going to pronounce it as Cocytus. When I'm talking about it for the sake of Dante's poem, I'm going to go with Cocytus. Okay? Okay. Anyway, as I mentioned last week, I've only read The Inferno a few times, and that's including this time. I've returned to cantos and portions of it from time to time, so I've probably read it more than a few, just not front to back, or in order, for that matter. Kind of like how I've never actually sat through a Christmas story in its entirety more than once. But I know the movie beginning to end, because every year I catch this piece or that piece as it replays for 24 hours at Christmas time. But anyway, where was I? You know, I know I was going somewhere with that. I knew it was going to be relevant. Hmm. Oh, right. For this project, I've been reading various translations, listening to various lectures, going through a variety of articles and think pieces relating to the Inferno. And honestly, at this point, I feel like I've done a major disservice to Dante with what I've done with Darker Days. And while I'm far from an expert on the subject, I feel like I've read the Inferno far more times than I actually have. The point is, however, that in all of my research, all of my readings, all of my listenings, the giant, the old man of Crete, is one of the most intriguing pieces of this Dantean world. Some translations say his entire left leg is made of clay, while others have said it's only the left foot. Some say he's in a mountain, some say he resides in a cave on a mountain. I even saw one the other day that said he resides beneath the Isle of Crete. Some will tell you the deeper meaning of this is to say that Dante is stating that since these rivers form from this giant so near the Earth's surface, that hell is actually closer than we might otherwise think, or that we as a society have created hell, or are maybe on the way to creating hell, and bringing it that much closer to our mortal existence. I'm not here to say I agree one way or another. As I always say, art is subjective. We take what we want from it, and we get what we take. I will say, however, the idea that hell could one day merge with life on Earth, to me, anyway, is an interesting one. It's certainly a theme that will be explored further on in darker days. But do I think that's what Dante was saying? I don't know. So... Let's just move on to the other meanings of this giant in the mountain, or under the mountain, or on the... You, you, let's just move on. 
Many or most scholars agree that this giant is symbolic of the various ages of the world, from the Golden Age at the top to the Iron Age at the bottom. The single foot being made of clay is often thought to be symbolic of the church, malleable, unbalanced, and easily corrupted. In Canto 15, Dante and Virgil continue on the river's edge. Careful to avoid straying too far, so as not to be burned by the flames and burning sands. In this circle, we meet the violent against nature. The Sodomites. This is yet another hate-the-sin-not-the-sinner approach. And I'm actually very hesitant to use that phrase. At no point does he show any malice or hatred here. In fact, it's quite the opposite. His views on sodomy and homosexuality are remarkably non-judgmental here. I'm not an expert on Dante personally. I've never read anything outside of the Inferno, so I don't know where he lands on the topic outside of this particular tale. But for the purposes of the Inferno... He has a very strict adherence to the law of the Bible. It seems that, in his view, only the most rigid of adherence to the rules will keep one out of hell. In this circle, he has a discussion with a very influential person in his life. His former teacher, Brunetto Latini. Dante asks him to stop for a moment so they can have a discussion. Latini tells Dante that if he, Latini, stops, he will be forced to lay in the sand for 100 years as the fire rains down on him. However, they are able to walk with one another for a small amount of time. Dante's reverence for Latini is one of the most notable encounters in the Inferno. The fact that he places one of the most beloved figures, one of the most influential figures in his life, down here in hell, is telling of just how balanced his perspective was. He could have easily filled this place with political rivals or those he didn't like. And certainly, he does in some places. But here, he made the conscious effort to refrain from such a biased form of writing. I, on the other hand, have taken the opposite approach. Throughout this book, we are going to meet a lot of bad people, some of whom we've already met, and they're all people I greatly dislike, or hold a significant grudge against. But more on that later. Latini foresees great fortune and fame for Dante, but Dante, ever so modest, says... That would be great, but he'll be happy with however much or however little he gets. Sure, I'd love to win the lottery, but I'm really okay with making minimum wage at the old Burger King. I wish I was that enlightened. After this exchange, Latini runs off to join the rest of his pack of sinners, and Dante makes a strange comparison saying he looks like a runner winning a race. This, of course, is yet more praise from Dante the poet 
in regards to his fallen teacher. Very admirable. In chapter 29, The Golden City of Usera, we traverse the same hot sands as our leaders, Dante and Virgil, but we leave behind some of the symbolism, some of the mythology, and some of the sinners in general. If you're one of the very few people who own an actual copy of the book, and one of the few people that have actually read the book, you'll notice some changes here. In the original version, Mr. and the Woodman approached the nomads, and were approached by one of them. The man, in silent wonder, places a hand to Mr. before catching fire. It was a small interaction that had little impact and little importance. I rewrote it for the podcast, giving the sinner some blasphemous dialogue that better reflects the inferno. It doesn't change the plot, but it makes it a more accurate adaptation of the source material. Also, when they reach the Golden City, and they see the usurers wandering aimlessly with their gold bags and heavy chains, murmuring to each other, that was also changed for the podcast. Originally, these characters were silent. But, as I've mentioned before, the book is no longer in print, or available as an ebook for that matter. So, for the most part, the changes don't really affect most of the listeners. Maybe even all of the listeners. When this show is completed, however, I'll more than likely re-release the book as the podcast edition or something. Missing from my version of hell are the sodomites. The usurers are in a slightly different place as well. There is no river of blood here, and the old man of Crete, that weeping statue symbolic of societal decay, is left out entirely. So, finally back to the saga that is the duo of the Scarecrow and the Woodman. We see they are now better suited to their current surroundings. Remember, when we saw them last, they were talking to Plutus, who agreed to help them in hopes that they would find and kill Vel. The Woodman is now heavier, less prone to rusting. Mister now has a thicker skin, skin like a rhino, and is less prone to burning. Each of them still feels pain from water and fire, respectively, but they are much more protected. This is where my youthful love of video games rears its influential head once more. These two met some dude, upgraded their armor, giving them a much-needed stat boost, so they could make it through the next update and DLC. Someone paid for a season pass. Anyway, this chapter, like the one before it, is reminiscent of the Inferno in that the Woodman, more or less, takes the role of Virgil, while Mr. gets to play Dante. Like Dante's poem, embers fall from the sky. Mr. feels them, but they don't amount to much more than a slight annoyance. A light rain for the Woodman would be equal to this. They notice a group of nomads wandering and stretching across the horizon. 
Mr. inquires about them, and the woodman tells him they aren't going anywhere. At least, nowhere important. When Mr. further inquires about how the woodman knows this, our metal friend simply insults him, saying because he was human once, and his head isn't full of straw. While Virgil has chastised Dante in the past, it was always to teach Dante a lesson, something like sympathy is not always necessary or something. The woodman insulting Mr. is nothing but a heartless act. They eventually meet the line of nomads, and one of them approaches Mr. As he spouts off some kind of blasphemous, cryptic message, an ember falls from the sky and ignites the man's head. He falls to the ground and tries to extinguish it by picking up handfuls of sand and pouring it over the flames. It doesn't work, and so instead, he rolls around in pain, scorning the god that scorns him. Mister is about to help, but the woodman stops him and points out that this problem is none of their concern. I've lumped all the sinners into this one nameless character. He's wandering like the sodomites. Once he catches fire, he crouches like the usurers. And when he can't put out the fire, he lies on the ground like the blasphemers. I never mention sodomy or homosexuality. That's a debate I have absolutely zero interest in getting into. Unlike Dante, there is no sympathy from the characters here. In fact, the woodman kicks the sinner while he's down. I didn't drop every sin for my revision of the Inferno, however. I kept what I feel is the biggest sin in place, what Dante considered to be the most harmful. That's usury. As we get into the actual city, we see people wandering around with bags of money hanging around their necks, weighing them down. This depiction of the usurers is a reference to the next canto. The woodman gives a little bit of hate-filled conjecture here. He lets Mr. know that even this hot, arid hellscape is too good for these people. Approached by armed guards, much like in the city of hoarders and wasters, they are escorted to Queen Usera, who, of course, gets her name from the word usury. I love the idea that she's so weighed down by her collection, by her greed, that she can't move. I love the visuals of this golden queen surrounded by telescopes and gramophones all so she can keep a watchful eye or ear on this city of hers. This is one of my favorite aspects of the chapter. I picture a Tim Burton-esque set piece for her. She threatens to keep these two, makes mention of Vel and how surprisingly fearful of the witch she is, and eventually agrees to let them go after all. But only if they promise to deliver a special treasure to Ozma. And, of course, Mr. agrees. 
If I missed something or failed to address something you feel I should have, or goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, which is always possible, just go ahead and let me know. I'm always open to questions, comments, or constructive criticism. You don't have to like the show. Not sure why you're listening if you don't. But like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. I believe in you. If you want to get in touch with me, you can always get me at darkdaysofdorothygale at outlook.com. It's at darkdorothyg on Twitter and TikTok. Alternately, you can find me as the Ordinary Sun. That's S-U-N on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And of course, if social media isn't your jam, there's always the official Dark Days website, ddofdg.com. You can also find links to t-shirts and stickers and stuff there as well. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and in paperback form, but at the time of this particular recording, the podcast is the only way to experience it. If you would like to support the show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker really is the coolest way to go. If you want to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct and financial way, you can always find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinarysun. Again, that's S-U-N. If you do, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch. If you'd like a shout out on this obscure show, I'll even do that for you too. If you don't want to donate to this cause, that's fine too. So, with all that out of the way, come back next time for Chapter 30, The Reunion Special 3. Thanks for listening. I love you all.